0: Hey everyone, you're listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the book of Ephesians. Enjoy the message. So we're actually ending chapter 3 today. We've been in this book for the last few weeks, and uh, it's a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the city of Ephesus, this pagan city this diverse city, and God is doing a mighty work in this city. And as he gets to the end of chapter three, he bursts into prayer. And he's going to be praying, and this prayer actually forms an important transition in the book. And it's a transition from what we've called doctrine. He's been talking about some pretty deep doctrine about how God saved the Ephesians, and secondly, about how God has now joined these Gentile Ephesians to the Jews who are saved, and how they have now one body in Christ. And he's been talking about how salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And these wonderful truths are beginning to shape their lives. And now he moves from this just being simply theology, and he wants it to become doxology. He wants it to become lives of praise. It's not just good enough that we know these truths, we need to live these truths. And so this forms part of the framework of our book, how we're moving from sit to walk. To stand. We are sitting in Christ. It's our identity, things we need to know about who we are in Christ, but also we need to walk and follow Christ. And so this is a transition point in the book. And it's a spiritual prayer. It's a very personal prayer. In many ways, Paul is pleading and he's rejoicing. He's rejoicing at what happened. He's rejoicing in what he said. And he's pleading that God would do a mighty work in the people, in the church. And the work that he's looking for is that they would begin to experience what they now know. And I want to say that's a very important link. As a church at CG, we love to know truth. We love to study theology. But the whole point of that is that we get to experience the truth that we know. We get to worship God, and we get to live for God. I remember when the uh, 2010 Soccer World Cup came through South Africa. Um, my son was, how old was he back then? And uh, he was young, uh, probably about, uh, he was seven. Just quickly doing the maths while I'm talking. And uh, see, I can do more than one thing at once. Um, he, was, he was about seven, and I remember we watched this little documentary, because at every World Cup, they make a new soccer ball. And uh, and the Jabulani, remember the Jabulani soccer ball, was made specifically for the South African World Cup. And it was highly controversial because this thing would swerve through the air, remember? No, you don't. (laughs) But... uh, it was highly controversial. And so we watched, my son and I, we were watching, and he loves soccer. We were watching this documentary, and it was intricate about how this ball was worked and how it was shaped and the different materials they used. And we were learning all this information. But then the greatest joy was not just receiving information, was when he actually got to kick the ball. And we bought him one, and he got to hold it and play with it. And that's what kind of Paul is after here. In this prayer, he, he's saying, I want you to go from what you know I want you to feel it. I want you to experience it. I want you to know what it is to be a Christian and live it out. And so let's read this prayer from verse 14 to 21. Paul writes, he says, for this reason, so he's looking back, everything he said, everything he's taught, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father and the posture of prayer in that ancient days at least within the Jewish context was one of standing Jews would stand and pray and it's almost as if Paul is overwhelmed he's desperate and he bows his knees before the father verse 15 from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. There's a strange concept amongst human beings around this idea of what I've called home and away. You know, we know that this operates in the sporting world. You know, you get a home game and then you've got to pay the away leg and the away leg is the away game. And the home game is supposedly a lot easier because you're familiar with the territory, you know the ground, you know how big the field is, and you've got home support. But the away game is another story altogether. It's unfamiliar and it's in many ways, an adventure. And as human beings, we live in the strange tension between home and away. For some of us, all we want is a home. There's a longing in us for identity, a longing for belonging, a longing for security. And we feel like we're wandering through life and all we want is to be secure and stable. And so this home, it becomes a dream and a pursuit and we want to settle down and we want to make a home. But then there's the strange reality of those that have that, those that have this sense of identity and a sense of place, often want to abandon it and go away. Because there's this other longing, this, this, this other longing that emerges that says, there's something out there that I want to experience. There's a sense of adventure that I need to experience. And so you, you have the other side. And the other side is the travel, the, the lure of travel. And we want to be away and we want to travel. And, and there's this longing for transcendence and discovery and spontaneity. And yet, when you speak to those that live out of a suitcase and they're traveling the world and they're experiencing all these things, there comes a point in their hearts where they begin to long for home and stability. And they're tired of the spontaneous and they're tired of this journey and the adventure and they dream, they begin to dream and they begin to dream of settling down and buying a home and starting a family. And as human beings, we live in this strange tension, this longing between home and away. Now, here's what I want us to do. This is going to form the framework of this prayer. Because actually, this idea of home and away points to a greater story. It points to the human story, the very first human story, the story of Adam and Eve in a garden. The garden of Eden, in many ways, was home. It was the place of security. It was a place of belonging. It was a place of identity. More than that, it was the place of the presence of God. God was there. And so there was perfect satisfaction. There was joy. There was meaning and purpose. But then sin happened. And this perfect home was disrupted. And because of sin... They were cast out of the garden. And so we have this larger reality of being home, but being away. And since then, we've lived in this space, haven't we? As human beings, we have the sense that we're, we're away from home. We're out of Eden, and we, we're not quite sure how, what to do with it. We have these longings and these desires, but they are disordered desires. And ever since then, that they've ever since they were cast out the garden, mankind has been running away from God. And the irony is that we are running from God, but we are seeking Eden. We are seeking a perfect world. But the irony is that we'll never find meaning and purpose because we're running from the only one who provides meaning and purpose. Tolkien, who wrote the great books, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, says this. He says, certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. We all long for it, and we are constantly glimpsing it. And in many ways, his writings were all about this about this this longing for a better place, this longing for home, and we feel like we're away. And he says, Yeah, we get glimpses of it in life, don't we? But we don't know what to do. And when we look at the world around us, what we see is people are trying to achieve this kind of sense of utopia, the sense of another Eden. And the irony is that often it's about the next thing. You know, either it's a new home or it's a new, a new trip. You know, either it's a, it's a new car. Or it's a new adventure. And and we see this in in people when they have these midlife crises, don't they? They want to kind of just pack up everything and buy a Harley Davidson and go on a trip. But the irony of it is that it doesn't last. It doesn't last because these earthly things cannot satisfy. And so the next minute you look and then they're on to the next thing. And then the next thing. And so the West and our culture today is constantly on the run, constantly exhausted, constantly anxious, constantly frustrated because we're caught and we don't know what to do with these longings. Now the opposite of running is resting. And that's what Tolkien was talking about. And I think this is what Paul is getting at here. There is an experience that we need to have with God that brings about a rest. And we get glimpses of this. And what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christian is to find our rest in God. It means that we find our identity. We find our meaning and our purpose and our belonging in God. And so Paul's been writing about these things. He's firstly written about how God chose us from before the foundation of the world. And that cosmic reality should bring a rest to your heart. And then he's told us about how we've been adopted into God's family. You have, you have a home. You're part of God's family. And then he's written about how we've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. And it was Christ's blood that redeemed us and he's bought us. And so we've been reconciled to God. We were aliens from God, but we've been reconciled. But then he takes it even one step further and he says, you guys used to hate one another. Jews and Gentiles were hostile towards one another. Not only are you now reconciled to God, but you've been reconciled to one another. And then God has put us into one body, one whole family. And then he goes even one step further and says, this family is a new temple. And this temple becomes the dwelling place of God by his spirit. And so we have this enormous vision that he's laid out for us in the first two chapters. And and chapter two brings it to a close where he says this, speaking of Christians, speaking of those who are in Christ, he says this, that we are built on the foundation of, Of the apostles and prophets. Their teachings built on that. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone of all this truth. Then he says this. In whom the whole structure. This is the language of building. The language of home. Being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we are being built together. We individually are living stones being built together to become a temple. This is our home, church. This is our home. And then he says this, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, wherever the presence of God rests, we find our rest. So Paul prays, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So Paul's looking back at what he said for this reason, and then he bows his knees before the Father. Notice that there are, family members already in heaven. God is the father of those, those kids. He is still fathering them. They've died and they've gone to be with him and he's their father. Believing Jews and believing Gentiles, they are with him in heaven. But they're also believing Jews and they are believing Gentiles on earth and he's also the father of them. And Paul bows before this Enormous father who has this growing family, both in heaven and on earth. He's not only the father of the Lord Jesus, he's the father of those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we have this picture of one family with one father, in other words, one home. But there's a tension because our home is divided, isn't it? There's there's heaven and there's earth. There's heaven and earth, and heaven and earth have been separated. We don't have Eden anymore. Eden In Eden, heaven and earth were one. There was a unity. Heaven was on earth in the Garden of Eden. And when the fall happened, the divine, the heavenly separated. And so the question we need to ask is, what is the crux of Paul's prayer here? He's pleading, he's praying, but what is he ultimately after? And what we're going to see in this prayer is it's almost like a staircase. He, he climbs a staircase of truth, and firstly, he prays for strength. The word strength comes through regularly, and then he prays for power, and then he prays that we would be a loving community and that we would know the love of Christ, and then we prays that we would know it, that we'd have real knowledge, experiential knowledge, But what do these truths lead to? What what do these prayers lead to? And the ultimate thing they lead to is verse 19. He's praying for fullness. Fullness. Look at this in verse 9. He says, that you, after saying, we pray for strength, we pray for power, we pray for love, we pray for knowledge. And then he says, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now that needs some explaining. What is he, what's the ultimate goal? And the ultimate goal that he has in mind is this picture of a temple. Because in the Old Testament, it was only the temple that was filled with the presence of God. And so once again, he has this image in mind of the church being the temple of the Holy Spirit that needs to be filled. And so, his idea here, his thought is all of these truths that we need strength and we need love and we need knowledge and we need power so that we could be more like God. We need to be representatives of God. We need to be temples that are filled with God. You see, we can fill our lives with things, can't we? We can fill our lives with distractions. We can fill our lives with materialism. We can, you know, we talk about sometimes, you know, in a parenting moment, you can say to your kids, you're full of rubbish. You know that. (laughs) I've done that. And we can be full of stuff. We can be full of pride. We can be full of anxiety. This thing of home and away creates anxiety. And Paul is praying that we would be a temple. In Christ, that is full. In other words, his prayer. What does it mean to be filled with all the fullness of God? It's another way of saying that you would be like Jesus. Because Jesus is the fullness of God. He's the divine expression of God. He is the embodiment of God in the flesh. And so Paul is praying that we would be more like jesus that we would be christ-like conformed to his image and if we're going to be conformed to the image of christ one of the things we need to know is that he is the perfect temple isn't he remembering john 2 where he said destroy this temple and in three days it'll be raised again when he was talking about himself his resurrection from the dead And so in his resurrection, Jesus becomes a glorious new temple. And those who have faith in Christ are joined to this temple. And individually, we are living stones being built together to become a dwelling place for the fullness of God to dwell in us. And so individually, we we are to become more and more like Jesus. And that's what he's praying for. So let's have a look at just some of the details quickly of what he's praying so that we would be more like Christ. The first thing we need to note is he's praying that our temple, that we would be strong. He wants it to be a strong temple. You can just imagine those, that ancient temple that, that David and Solomon spoke of, how strong it was. It was mighty. It had walls and moats and gates, and it was this mighty temple. It was strong. Verse 16, have a look there. It says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And what's the point? Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell. In your hearts through faith. That's the end goal. That's the fullness he wants. He wants us to be more like Jesus. Because that's the only way we can be strong. It's the only way we can be strong. It's the only way our longings are met. Now what's interesting is he's... Isn't he talking about Christians? And so he's talking about Christians being filled and Christ dwelling in their hearts. And the question could be, but isn't he already dwelling in their hearts? And the answer is, yes, He is there, but we need to become more like Him. We need to grow in our sanctification. We need to grow in holiness. We need to grow in Christ-likeness. And the only place that we can start is with Jesus Himself. You will not have a strong life. You will not have a strong temple if you have everything else except Jesus. You can have religion. You can have moralism, you can have fame, you can have status, you can have money, but if you don't have Jesus, you have a frail temple. Jesus is the cornerstone. Look at what uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 6 and 7. He writes this about Jesus. He says, Behold and actually, yeah, he's quoting Isaiah. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. Not any stone. Look what he says. A cornerstone. Chosen and precious. This is Jesus. He's the cornerstone. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So whatever you're building, whatever, and every one of us are building something. You're building your life. You're taking in information. You're getting educated. You're growing as a person. You have friendships and relationships. All of that's shaping you. You're building your life. But what's at the bottom of it? Is, is Jesus Christ the cornerstone of your life? Because if not, you'll be put to shame. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Then he says this, So the honor is for you who believe. There is blessing for those who believe and build their life on Christ. But for those who do not believe, and here's what it means to not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so the picture here is clearly of builders. And he's referring to the Jewish nation. He's referring to the Israelites, those who had the covenants and those who had the promises. They were the builders of God's kingdom, supposedly. But this was a crucial point in their history. And the crucial point in their history was whatever they were building, they took this important cornerstone and they looked at it from all sorts of different angles. And they they decided that they didn't need this stone. And so they threw it away. And what they built came crashing down. Because Jesus is the cornerstone of the true temple. The real temple. The only temple that really matters. And so his prayer is that we would be strong. And that we would be built on Christ. If you don't have Christ, you have a fragile life. He says Christ must dwell in our hearts. In other words, he mustn't just be a visitor. He mustn't just be a guest. He must be a permanent resident. He must dwell there. He must inhabit your life. He must be the cornerstone. That's the first thing. Number two, he prays that we would be a loving temple. Now, historically, the Jews and Gentiles hated one another. And we've seen this. This is a human problem. A human problem is evident all over the world. Racism, gender-based violence. There is hatred. It's part of the human fabric. Part of the human nature is that we compare ourselves with one another and we begin to elevate ourselves and put others down and put others up and esteem all the wrong things and value all the wrong things. And part of his prayer is that we need to stop that. The the temple of God, there's no room for that in the temple of God. The temple of God is to be a loving temple, a temple that is demonstrating the love of Christ. So look at verse 17. It says, that you being rooted in, And grounded in love may have strength. There's the strength again. To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So there are two main thoughts here. One is that we would be grounded, rooted and grounded in love. Love for one another. Again, the picture here, the imagery of being rooted, that's agricultural Imagery, isn't it? Rooted, a plant, it gets rooted. And so he says, we need to be a well-rooted tree. And the soil of our tree is love, not any love. It's verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So this tree must be rooted in the love of Christ. And then the picture is grounded, rooted, well-rooted tree and grounded. It's building language. It's foundation language, grounded. So the foundation needs to be grounded on Christ, who is love, the perfect expression of love. Notice also, it's not just a secure love, it's a communal love. He says that we, are, we, we achieve this end of love by being together. He says there, to comprehend with all the saints. If we're going to discover and know what it is to be a loving temple, we need one another. You see, love by its very nature means that you need other people. Love is not an individual thing. Love needs other people. Otherwise, there's no love. And so he says we are to comprehend with all the saints... What is the breadth and length and height and depth? I want to just say here, if you are struggling in your relationship with Jesus, if, you, if you're thinking, I feel far from Jesus, this is a clue that one of the ways in which you draw near to Jesus is by drawing near to the people of God around you. With the saints, together with the saints, you comprehend. Just go and ask someone who's in a community group how they felt before they joined a the group and how they now feel. They, they, they feel nurtured. They feel loved. They feel closer to God because I'm in a community. I'm comprehending, together with the saints, this incredible love of Christ. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And there are two thoughts here. One is that this love of Jesus is, is immeasurable. And so he invites us. He says, come. Come and, come and experience this love come and think about it come and consider it come and try try and get your arms around it he's he's almost inviting us to say hey try hug a galaxy have you ever tried to hug a galaxy i mean i can hug my wife and and and, and that's she's you know, petite and cute uh, but to hug a galaxy is impossible why because it's immeasurable it's immeasurable he says To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Even with all the saints, we will never plumb the depths of the love of Jesus. And so he's praying that we would be a temple of love. That love in our lives would be very real. It would be experienced and it would be expressed. But then the final thing he prays for. Is that we would be a glorious temple. Now, notice this in verse 21 and 20, sorry, 2021, 20, he says this. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory. Where? In the church, in the temple, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And you get the feeling that Paul here is just bursting with praise. He moves from prayer to now praise. Now to him, he says, who is able. In other words, he's now glimpsed a picture of what this temple can really be and what this temple can actually achieve. And the vision that he gets of what we can become, of what the church is called to be, he says, is more than we could ever ask. More than we could ever think. It is abundant, what God has in store. Now, let me develop this for a little bit. I want to go back to the imagery of home and away. You see, when, when we talk of temples... Many of us are unfamiliar with this kind of language because we haven't grown up maybe with a temple. Or, you know, we're not Jewish, and so we don't understand the Jewish culture. And the temple of, within Jewish culture was very central to their lives. It was a very important place. The temple in, Jewish, in the Jews' mind was, was sacred. It was a place where the presence of God would dwell. But there were also temples in other nations. And we find that there are temples in other religions. There are Buddhist temples, there are Sikh temples, there are Islamic temples, there are Hindu temples, and we have them around Port Elizabeth, don't we? Well, where's the Christian temple? Is there not a Christian temple? Well, there is. We're it. You and I. Yes, we meet in a building. This, that's why Christians never call the building the church. That's why Christians never call the building the temple because we are the church. We are the temple. And so Christ does have a temple. It's us. Now what's fascinating about the place of a temple because what I find this really fascinating that, that not only the old covenant and Jewish people had a temple, But other religions also have temples. So what's the fascination with temples? The fascination with temples is that it is a meeting place, isn't it? And the reason it's a meeting place is because in many ways, a temple is the place where heaven meets earth. It's where the divine being interacts with the finite. The infinite and the finite have this mediating place called the temple. And in all religions, there's that ethic undergirding the ideology of a temple. It's a meeting place. It's a place of communication. It's a place where the people meet with the God or the gods. And in most pagan temples or in most other religious temples, the gods are in the temple represented, aren't they? In the form of idols or in the form of statues. And these statues would be representative. The statues would represent the gods or the God. And it makes me think of night at, night at the museum. Imagine at night these idols coming alive. But that's not what happens. They don't come alive at night. It, it, it just stands there. The, the, the statue or the idol... And we know that it doesn't come alive. It's representing something, isn't it? It's it's there to represent. It's there to show this is the authority of this so-called God. Now, this was the big fundamental difference between all other pagan temples and the Jewish temple. Because under the old covenant, the one thing that was absolutely forbidden in the Jewish temple was an idol. Idols were forbidden. Now hold on to that thought. Because when we go back to the Garden of Eden, what we find in the Garden of Eden, like I said earlier, is heaven and earth united. The presence of God, the meeting place where God walked with Adam and Eve, and there was perfect harmony. And so, in that sense, the Garden of Eden was a temple. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so God dwelt there. And and there was perfect peace. It was home. It was a temple. And when sin happened and they were cast out of the garden, from there on, Israel began to build firstly tabernacles, moving temples. And then it became physical structures. And the idea was we acknowledge that we're away. From Eden. And there is a glimpse of heaven on earth. And so where the temple was, there was an inbreaking, a sense of inbreaking, a sense of the divine meeting with man. And so the temple became a meeting place. Now the reason why idolatry was forbidden in the Jewish temple was because, unlike the pagan temples, the priest himself was the image-bearer of God. We don't need images because we are made in the image of God. And so to have other images was blasphemy. You see, the people of God, the priest, and now the people of God have always been... The place where God wants to meet with man. Because we are image bearers. We reflect the image of God. We don't become God. We are called upon, like Adam was, to represent God in the garden. To, to, to bear witness to God. And so we too are now in Christ's temples And it is blasphemy when we bring other things into the temple of our lives. And we live disordered lives, sexually immoral lives and disobedient lives. Those are bringing idols that are not conformed to the image of Christ into our lives. And God wants to sanctify our temples. God wants to cleanse our temples. And that's the whole point, that Christ may dwell in our hearts. And through Christ coming. And the power of the spirit coming. And the fullness of God coming. He wants to cleanse our temples. So that we can be the image bearers of God. He wants to. Have heaven invade our earth. Christ wants to dwell. In our hearts. Isn't that incredible? And so. The call to be a Christian is not to go and find a place or to find a land, but it's to have Christ dwell in your heart and allow him to drive out all the things that corrupt. God is building a new temple. Of believing Jews and believing Gentiles throughout all the generations. Notice he says throughout all the generations. You see what God's doing here, Paul gets a glimpse of. He's saying this is beyond your imagination. Because there used to be just one meeting place. But now look how many meeting places there are. Because every single Christian throughout all generations forever and forever are meeting places where heaven and earth meet, where we in our sinful state get to meet with God and commune with God and we become temples where God dwells and the presence of God stills the longing. The games we play of home and away are now stilled because home is where the presence of God Home is where God is. And so you might find yourself in this weird cycle of this home and away game that we play. And no matter where you go, and no matter what you get, and no matter how much wealth you accumulate, it will not satisfy. Because that's not home. Only the presence of God satisfies. Only the presence of God is home. Only he can still your longings. And now these temples cover the earth. And the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. For Because wherever Christians are, there the presence of God is. And so we're coming back to Eden. And the book of Revelation gives us this picture of this garden city. And at the end of the story, heaven again invades earth. And we have a new heaven and a new earth. God is doing something more than we can ask or imagine. So let's not settle. Let's not not settle for some lower version. No, no. Let's let's embrace this beautiful picture that the earth is the Lord's. and, 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 And in many ways, it's his footstool. God is in the heavens and the earth is his footstool. But one day it will be reunited. Until then, we, you and I, are glimpses of Eden. My last thought is this. In the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, and in the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, Paul introduces himself as this, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. Or in four, Paul, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. And we said this last week. Isn't that remarkable? Because if you were receiving this letter written from Paul, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, you go, hey, well, stop, stop, stop. Paul, you're not a prisoner of the Lord. You're a prisoner of Rome. It was the Romans that arrested you. you. You've got this wrong. You're a prisoner of Rome. And Paul's like, no, don't worry about that. No, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I'm not a prisoner to my circumstances. Because he's figured this out. He's the temple. Of the Holy Spirit. And he's full of the fullness of God. He's becoming more and more Christ-like. In other words, wherever he is, is home. Because he has the presence of God. Even in a prison, he feels at home. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Because home is where the heart is. And Paul's prayer is that our hearts would be filled with Christ that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And if Christ dwells in your heart, you are truly home wherever you are. Amazing, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for this incredible vision. And we also want to exclaim like Paul, now to him who is able to do abundantly more than we could ask or imagine because of his power at work within us. That he's he's establishing this glorious temple to fill the earth. And we get to be places of the presence of God. We get to represent God. We get to be image bearers. And so, Father, I want to pray for us. I pray, Lord, that we would search our hearts now. And that we would say, Lord Jesus, come and cleanse my temple. Come and cleanse this temple. Rid it, Lord. Get rid of the idols. And in its place, fill us with the fullness of God. Fill us with Christ. We pray that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for this wonderful vision. And we've seen glimpses of it. We've seen glimpses of Eden, but we want more of it, Lord. We're tired. We're tired of the longing. We're tired of playing the game away and home and then away and then home. Looking for transcendence, looking for adventure. When, when really it can only be found in your presence, Lord. We will only ever be satisfied in your presence when we yield and we build our lives upon the stone, the cornerstone of Christ. Lord, help us to understand this. Help us to believe this. Help us to live it out, I pray. We don't want to just talk about it, Lord. We want to live it. We want to experience the love of Christ. We want to know it, this love that surpasses understanding. Give us more of it, we pray. Fill us, Lord. May we be your living temple. May we be your living temple and we bring you sacrifices, sacrifices of praise. We are are your living sacrifice. Jesus, fill us, we pray. And give us rest, the rest that we long for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song.